Amen. All right. It's great to have everybody out today, and it's great to have Brother Jackson with us today. And I, I met him, he probably doesn't remember the first time I met him. I met him over at Faith Baptist one time. They were holding a little rally there in the fellowship hall. It was the first time I ever met him, and I uh, really enjoyed hearing him speak. And then, of course, we had him here for Heroes and Heritage Month four years ago, I think it was, and uh, enjoyed that as well. But I uh, talked to him on the phone the other day, and, uh, and, and listen, folks, I mean, I'm glad he's running for office, but I'm also glad he's a pastor, and I'm glad he knows how to preach the word and we talked on the phone uh, and uh, I'm telling you what he's got it right where it needs to be right as far as what we should be looking for in people that are going to run this country we need people that believe in the Bible and the values taught in the Bible and he does that now we're excited to have him here he's going to preach for us after the service today there's going to be a light lunch back in the fellowship hall I know it's not our normal week for a lunch but that's okay there's going to be a light lunch back in the fellowship hall we invite everybody to stay join us for lunch we'll look forward to a to a time back there, they'll give you an opportunity to meet and talk uh, with Brother Jackson. But I'm, I'm thrilled to have him here with us today, and I'm looking forward to what the Lord has for him to share today. So, Brother Jackson, you come on forward and share from the Word. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Brother. Well, Pastor Ken, thank you so much for the honor and the opportunity to be here. Um, I want to say I owe you a special debt of thanks because... I announced my candidacy on Friday night, and the first church I, have to, I get to preach to as not only a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but a candidate for president of the United States of America is Crossroads Baptist Church. So if the Lord sees fit to put me in the White House, you'll be able to say, it started here. So thank you so much, Ken. Um, in the back, there's a table with my books on it, folks. I just wrote a new book called Sweet Land of Liberty, Reflections of a Patriot Descended from Slaves. Uh, Ken, I've got a gift uh, of one of these books for you, but I'll be available to sign. This is, this is yours, signed personally to you and your wife. Thank you so much for the hospitality. The least I could do is give you a complimentary book. It wasn't my idea to put my picture on it. That was my publisher's, but it's on there. Um, the first question I want to answer, and by the way, I want you all to rest assured, you know, you're going to get out in time for dinner, because, Ken, you said no longer than two hours. Now, with rain, of course, I could go three, maybe. But um, I, I do want to say quickly before I get into the message, I'm running really for two very basic reasons. And you maybe could add a third. I'm running because I love God, and I really believe that this nation is a gift from Almighty God. And therefore, I love this country, and I really believe our country is in deep, deep trouble. And while there are candidates that I would ultimately support, I don't see a candidate who is saying the one thing that must be said, America needs God. And without God, America will not succeed, and we will not have a future. We have got to come back to the God of the Bible if we want to have a future for this nation. And the third reason is right here in front of me, my, my lovely wife, my son, uh, I've got one grandchild now, and I want, as all of you I'm sure do, to leave this country better off than I found it. And right now the forces at work are trying to destroy what we've got. They're trying to tra fundamentally transform the country into something our founders never intended, our Constitution doesn't really allow, and God will never approve. Uh, and so I'm going to at least be a voice in the process. And if the Lord sees fit, who knows? Uh, I know that I'm a long shot at best, 
But the word of God says, with men things are impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God, and all things are possible to them that believe. And I believe. So first and foremost, I solicit your prayers. Pray for me that the message I have will be heard. Uh, we've noticed already the mainstream media is pretty much ignoring me so far. I tell you what, the leftists are not because they're already saying nasty things about me now that I've declared for president. So, so we're just believing God that we will get the uh, attention that is needed in order to give our message an opportunity to get out there. Uh, so thank you again, Ken. Thank you all for being here in this rain. We just drove two and a half uh, hours to get here, not knowing what we were going to face when we got close, uh, a downpour. So uh, I thank God that the rainbow doesn't mean homosexuality. The rainbow means God's not going to destroy the earth by water again. So. <laughs> amen, amen. Well, I want to call your attention to a passage of Scripture with which I'm sure all of you are familiar it's in Psalms 11.3, and it says, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Just a little more than two weeks ago, we celebrated the 247th anniversary of the existence of our nation. The most successful constitutional republic in the history of mankind. According to David Barton, constitutions around the world change about every 17 years. Ours has lasted now almost a quarter of a millennium. It is extraordinary. Nothing like it has ever happened in the history of mankind. It is something that we should all be in awe of. And yet, according to Gallup, Polls taken recently show patriotism in our country at the lowest it's been since they've been keeping records. Only 38% of the American people, 38% believe that they have something to be very proud of in being Americans. I'm sure you all saw during the Olympics, they were doing interviews with young people asking them were they going to root for the American team and many of them said I'm not going to root for a team just because they come from where I live. No sense of loyalty, no sense of commitment, no sense of pride in the country. We just finished a month that they call pride in which a homosexual flag was flown at the White House. But when it comes to July 4th now, we're hearing more and more people say, well, I'm not celebrating July 4th. It doesn't necessarily represent me. I mean, we've never experienced this in the history of our country. This started in the 60s, but it's accelerated. And so clearly, we've got a problem when that number of people in our country don't feel a sense of profound loyalty to America. When Hitler marched into France and took France in six weeks, every military historian will tell you it was not because they didn't have the munitions. It was not because France didn't have the, the army or the military. It was because they had been demoralized. It was because they had, been, they had come to believe as a result of what scholars were telling them that France wasn't important. The global governance was what was important. Just like we have people telling us now, America doesn't matter. What matters is the world. And we ought to see ourselves as citizens of the world and not focus so much on being citizens of the United States of America. 
That's why we've got an administration that doesn't care how many people flow across the border, how many children die in the process, how many people are trafficked in the process, how much fentanyl comes across killing our people in the process, how many MSN, MS-13 gang members, how many potential terrorist people on the, the watch list come across. They don't care about any of that because what they really care about ultimately is power power to transform this nation, and they think that's going to help them do it, and then power ultimately to surrender that sovereignty to organizations like the UN and the World Health Organization. So we have got a problem with the foundations being destroyed in our country, so I want to spend a few moments talking about those foundations. On December 20th, 1605, 145 settlers set out from England to come to the New World. And in 1607, they land, when they landed, after a, a long, circuitous trip, landed at Jamestown, Reverend Robert Hunt presided over a ceremony dedicating the Cape Henry Cross, which is still marked to this day. And here's what he said. These are the first settlers to this nation. We do hereby dedicate this land and ourselves to reach the people within these shores with the gospel of Jesus Christ and to raise up godly generations after us and with these generations take the kingdom of God to all the earth. And they call that a covenant of dedication, indicating that they saw themselves as a covenant people entering into covenant not only with one another but with almighty God as well. And then the Mayflower settlers, those who were on the Mayflower, when they were about to land, they entered into covenant with one another and said, in the name of God, amen, by the grace of God, loyal subjects of King James. And by the way, that is the King James responsible for the translation of the King James Bible, just as a footnote. Defender of the faith, having undertaken for the glory of God and advancement of the Christian faith, do by these presents solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one another. Covenant and continue ourselves together, combine ourselves together into a civil body politic. They also saw themselves as a covenant people entering into covenant with one another and with Almighty God. Now we're now told that America was settled for slavery, that it was birthed in slavery, but here are the facts. Neither of these settlements brought any slaves. Neither of them talked about slavery. Neither of them used slaves in the settlement of this nation. And the first slaves to arrive on these shores, and they weren't slaves, they ultimately were, were uh, indentured servants, arrived by accident on a ship called the White Lion that had taken over the San Juan Batista that was on its way to South America and the West Indies. And some of those slaves were traded by, the, by, by the, 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 the captain and the crew in order to get food and supplies to continue their journey. Even when the first Africans came to this continent, they came by accident. I'm here to tell you today that America was not founded in slavery. It was not founded in racism. America was founded in the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It was founded for the purpose of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is the foundation that we must reestablish. We are a Christian nation and all the devils in hell can't change that. 
So not only are we a covenantal nation, we're a providential nation. Because our founders, looking back on what happened to bring them to where they were, saw the hand of God in the whole process. During the Constitutional Convention, when they had reached an impasse over any number of issues, Ben Franklin, who was considered to be the least Christian, or one of the least, among the founding fathers, and remember, my, I'll talk a little bit about my dad in a moment, but because we are a Christian nation and we have a Christian culture, not every single person has to be a born-again, baptized believer in order to be imbued with the values of our culture. Ben Franklin was one of those people. We don't have any record that Ben Franklin ever actually surrendered his life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But Ben Franklin stood up in the middle of the Constitutional Convention and said to his colleagues there, I have lived a long life, sir. And the longer I live, the more convincing proof I see of this, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall from the sky without his notice, is it possible that an empire can rise without his aid? He said, we read in the sacred scriptures, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that build it. He said, I believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we will be no more successful in this building than they were in the Tower of Babel. That's who we are. That's our real background. That is the root. And that, by the way, that broke the impasse and ultimately gave us the Constitution we now enjoy. George Washington, first president of the United States, the first official proclamation he ever issued said this, it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey his will, to be grateful for his benefits, and to humbly implore his favor and protection. If, 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 if America is an evil nation, a nation birthed in slavery, a nation that stole the land. Why is it that our founding fathers and those who founded this nation, those who first settled it, always made their reference back to Almighty God? It is because although we have never been a perfect nation and we never will be, and by the way, can I give you the secret for why we're we aren't and never will be a perfect nation? There are people here. And every single one of us is imperfect. Every single one of us needs redemption. The Bible says there is none righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that's true for the founding fathers. It's true for you and me. But nevertheless, when you have a set of standards to which you can aspire, at least you know what the standards are. At least you know what you're supposed to be. I'm a born-again believer. I love the Lord. I mean, he has saved me. There's no doubt about it in my mind. But I know that I fall short of his glory. But I also know what his glory is. I know what I'm supposed to be doing. I know how I'm supposed to live. And I'm constantly saying, Lord, get the glory out of my life. Make me what you want me to be. Use me for your glory. Use me for your plan. Use me for your purpose. You know, this is what America needs. America needs leadership 
First of all, that knows and loves Almighty God. Because without Him, we have no standards. And without Him, you see what we're seeing today, where people don't know who they are. They don't know what they stand for. They, they, basically, any wind will blow them. And right now, the winds of, of demonic influence are blowing this nation all off track from what God intended and from what the founding fathers intended and the vision they had for this nation as a shining city on a hill. We are a providential nation. The founding fathers <coughs> confirmed it. The Constitution and the Declaration confirmed it. Of all the words that could have been written, and I remind you, no other nation ever founded itself on such words. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Created, not evolved. Created. And endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I remember this because the world, philosophers, writers, thinkers, did not agree with what they said. And there are people in our country who won't say it, but they don't agree with it either. But they were saying, there is a personal God and he is the personal grantor of our rights and our liberties. And we are personally accountable to him. And every government ought to acknowledge that he is the one who gives each human being individual liberty. Not a president, not a king, not a potentate, but almighty God. No other nation has been founded on that principle. And that's why you and I are so secure or supposed to be in our rights and our liberties because we know they didn't even come by a majority vote. That what the Constitution and the laws of this land are supposed to do is secure the rights and the liberties that were given to us by Almighty God. That they're not giving us rights, they're simply acknowledging what God has done and saying we agree with Almighty God. Those are the founding fathers that we had. And while they were imperfect people, and yes, while they owned slaves because slavery was a universal institution, you cannot take away the greatness that they showed in setting forth a nation in which they themselves, as well as everyone coming after them, would ultimately be accountable to Almighty God for governing us. I said that the, the, this, this government that we would institute would be legitimized by the consent of the governed. In other words, they don't, people don't have the right to lord it over us and dictate to us that as a constitutional republic, God gives us our rights and our liberties. The people take our sovereignty and we delegate that to governmental representatives who are supposed to serve us, not rule over us. They are not our lords and masters. We don't work for them, they work for us. We pay their salaries, not the other way around. So we are a covenantal nation and a providential nation. And the scripture I've read says, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? There's another scripture in Proverbs 22, 28 that says, do not remove the ancient landmarks which your fathers have set. So what do we as Christians do when the foundations are being destroyed 
and when the landmarks are being removed. By the grace of God, we rebuild the foundations and we reset the landmarks. And these are, these are the landmarks I'm going to lay out for you right now that have got to be reset and the foundations that have got to be rebuilt if this nation is going to have a successful future. It, America doesn't work without God. Because if you remove God, then what you do is you remove the basis of our rights and liberties. And once you've done that, we are subject to the whims of man. That's why our First Amendment rights are being eroded by people saying, well, no, you can't say that. That's hate speech. W what is hate speech? Hate speech is what I don't like. It's what I don't agree with. That's hate speech. And you're not allowed to say that. You're not allowed to say that, the, that climate change is not going to destroy the planet. You're not allowed to say that, well, this, this is a guy. Why would I call him a girl? You're not allowed to say that. You're not allowed to say, well, wait a minute. Um, what about natural immunity with regard to COVID? No, you, you're, not, you're not allowed to say that. Why not? Because we say so. Well, who are you? Well, we'll be your God from now on if you let us. And I'm here to tell you, uh, I'm not going to allow human beings to take the place of Almighty God in our lives. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it's time for the church of Jesus Christ to stand up and say, we will not bow down. You can play whatever music you want. You can sing whatever songs you want. You can do whatever you want to try to seduce us into going along, but we are not going along with the lies, and we are not going along with your violations of the Word of God and your violations of our constitutional rights. We are going to stand up, and by the way, we're going to win because Jesus Christ has already won the battle for us. So the first foundation, obviously, is faith in God. That's number one. Because without that, nothing else works. And let's be clear. There are people who are systematically trying to undermine that. Since the first decisions um, in, in 1962 and 1963, removing prayer from the schools and then Bible reading, and then 1980, saying the Ten Commandments are a violation of separation of church and state. Take those down. How's that working out for us? But since that time, there's been a systematic effort to sanitize our culture of Christianity. I don't know how many of you have experienced it, but I have. As a speaker, I go places, and people say, would you pray? Oh, yes, I'd be happy to pray. And then they start mealy-mouthing and trying to figure out a way to tell me, don't mention the name of Jesus. Because somehow, that's offensive. Now, you can stand up and proclaim your transgenderism and you can stand up and brag about how many abortions you've had, but, but when you stand before a group, don't mention Jesus, because somebody might get offended by that. Well, he said his name would be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. If you get offended by the name of Jesus, too bad. I was invited to pray here, right here in Virginia um, before the state legislature many years ago, and, you know, the clerk was doing that. He was, they, were, they didn't want to say it, but they were, they were dancing around it. Well, you know, there's going to be an ecumenical group there. And, and I said, uh-huh, okay. And, you know, we have to really watch how we, I said, okay. But they wouldn't really come right out with it. I knew what they were saying. And they said, so, you know, you respect, absolutely. When I got there to pray my prayer, I began, I said, Father, in the name of Jesus. And you know, I had legislators mob me afterwards and say, thank you. 
Thank you for not bowing to that because we've had so many preachers come and they bow to it. See, I'm told to pray in the name of Jesus. And you're not taking that away from me, but that's where the culture is trying to take us. Don't mention God. Don't mention Jesus. But God is the foundation for this nation. You remember when, uh, when Representative Stubbe read from Deuteronomy 22.5 on the floor of Congress? Uh, he said, a woman must not wear men's clothing nor a man wear women's clothing for the Lord your God detests anyone who does this. And he was explaining the biblical basis for opposition to all of this transgenderism and drag queen story hour and trying to drag children into this sexual perversion. And it was, it was Jerry Nadler who stood up and said, and I, it's almost unbelievable, after what I just read you about our founding and our nation, he said, Quote, what any religious tradition describes as God's will is of no concern to this Congress. But, you know, but would, would George Washington have said that? Would Ben Franklin have said that? Would the early settlers have said that? No. But that's what we're getting now from Jerry Nadler and the members of his party. What they're basically saying is, we don't want God involved, just like the those that, in, in the parable that Jesus told uh, about the man who sent his son back. They killed all the, the, the other servants, meaning the prophets that he sent, and finally he sent his son, and they killed him too, saying, we will not have this man to rule over us. And that's what we've got in our culture today. People say, we will not have Jesus ruling over us. We will not have the Bible ruling over us. We will not have God ruling over us. Well, I'll tell you what, either you're going to have God or you're going to have the devil. And there are people who seem to want the devil ruling over them. But the Bible I read tells me that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And so if, as long as I am alive, I'm going to fight with every fiber of my being to make sure that America does not become a nation governed by Satan, but that a, America remains a nation whose God is the Lord, because that's the only key to America's future. So we got to relay that foundation. And secondly, we got to relay the foundation of family. You all realize families come under vicious assault in this country. The family is God designed it. One man, one woman in the bonds of holy matrimony. Now here again, I know we are perfect people and I know families suffer from divorce and, and all kinds of problems. But as I said earlier, but there's still a standard. In 1965, as you all know, when Johnson started the Great Society program, which was supposed to lift particularly black people out of poverty, he made the statement, and I won't quote him because it's a pretty nasty statement, but that by doing this, they would control the black vote for 200 years. That whole apparatus had a devastating impact, not only on the black family, and it did, but on families across this country. Because what it did was step in and replace the family with government and replace God with government and give people, particularly women, an opportunity to live, to have children without having to depend upon a man without having a husband, without having a, without having a, 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 a man in the home. And from 1965, let me just give you the data real quick. In, in 1950, only 3% of Americans of European ancestry, Italian, Irish, German, uh, only 3% of their children were born out of wedlock. Now it's over 30%. In 1950, only 13% of black children were born out of wedlock. Only 
Now it averages 72%. And in Richmond, it's 80%. And, and this, is, this is not by accident. I really believe this is engineering because Marxism, some, some ungodly ideology, sees the family as being in the way because the family is where these Christian values I've talked to you about are promulgated, where they're passed on, where they're taught to our children. You don't want parents being able to do that when you've got a different agenda for kids. And we're seeing that now. I mean, you've got in California and other states attempts to pass laws that tell parents that when teachers are dealing with their when teachers are dealing with children about their gender identity they must not tell the parents the parents have no right to know i mean we've come to a point where in some cultures in some parts of our country they think parents are too stupid to know how to raise their children and the government knows better the state knows better this, this is a violation of God's design. God designed children to be raised up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord by a mother and a father who would teach them ethics, teach them morals, teach them what they need to know in order to be productive, decent human beings. That's breaking down. In fact, it's broken down. And we've got to somehow reclaim it. Because right now, the inner cities across our country, all the crime that is going on is primarily the result of broken families. Young men who are raised in single-parent, female-headed households who get to a size and point in life where their mothers can no longer control them, and God bless those mothers who are trying. But they get to that point, and they start to listen to their friends in the streets and the gangs, and before you know it, they, instead of being decent human beings, they become monsters that are killing the very people that, that the, the left claims to be so concerned about. Black Lives Matter, they tell us. But I'm here to tell you 354 innocent children have been murdered since the defund the police movement began. And those children have been murdered usually by young black men roaming the streets, fighting each other, killing each other, and not caring who dies in the, in the collateral damage. And it's because of the family. I was born into a broken home. I was raised in poverty. I lived in a foster home from the age of 14 months until 10 years old. By the time I was 10, I was a member of a gang and I was roaming the streets. I knew who my father was, I knew who my mother was, but my mother was caught up with Jehovah's Witnesses and my father couldn't raise me, although he visited me and spent time with me, but felt he couldn't raise me as a single dad. But at the age of 10 years old, something dramatic happened. My father took me out of foster home, out of the foster home, and began to raise me himself. And I went from being a juvenile delinquent who was failing in fifth grade and committing petty crimes and a member of a gang to being an A student. That was, that was my fifth grade year, to being an A student in sixth grade, somebody who was on my way to do well in life. And it wasn't because some government program came in. It was because my father came in and took control of my life and gave me the direction that I needed. What these young men need is not midnight basketball. They don't need another government program. They need a daddy in the home to teach them what it means to be a man. And then the second thing that's, that's eroding the families is, is this redefinition of everything. And look, my brothers and sisters, let me just be clear with you. We began to lose this battle the moment we allowed this concept of sexual orientation to enter into our legal system and we created sexual orientation as a protected class. 
Because I said when that started, well, what does that mean? Oh, well, it just, it, it just means gay. Well, what does that mean? Because that, I used to think that meant happy, carefree. Well, it means homosexual. Well, now we're finding out, no, 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 it means a lot more than that. It means a lot more than that. Because now it means, well, how many genders do we have now? The last count I looked saw showed 107. I saw one description of sort of the LGBTQ, and it went on and on and on and on and on. I, I'm seeing literally, LGBTQ, triple A, triple I, and, and, and two-spirit. What, what it, well, it, you know what it means? It means whatever we want. It means whatever we want. And it means then that your children are protected from you when we decide that we, we want to give them hormones. I mean, it's shown that these hormone treatments for young children, prepubescent children, mess with their brains, mess with their bodies, and that these changes that are made are permanent. And then they want to operate on them as well. Because after all, they're a protected class, right? You've got to protect their right based upon their sexual orientation. I'm going to tell you something, folks. I really believe that we need two constitutional amendments. One that says marriage is one thing, a union between one man and one woman. That's it. That's all, period. You can do whatever you want to do with your personal life, but you can't impose that on the rest of us. And that there are only two genders, male and female. That's it. That's all. You can live however you want to live, but you can't impose on us and our children this idea that there are many genders and genders in fluid, are fluid. Jesus said in the beginning, God made them male and female. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. They too shall be one flesh. That's it. That's all. We got, to, we got to rebuild the family. And here's the third thing, and I'm done. We've got to reestablish truth. See, part of why we're in this mess is we've allowed moral and cultural relativism to creep into our country. Because look, and folks, please, please understand what I'm, if you don't remember anything else, remember this. When you remove God from the equation, you remove absolutes. And when you remove absolutes, what's right and wrong? What's true and false? You know what it boils down to? Whoever has the power to impose their view of truth. Do you realize how dangerous that is? They want to accuse we Christians who are patriots and love this country of being Nazis. I despise everything that Hitler represented. But you know what? In a world of moral and cultural relativism, where you are saying to your population, it's a good thing that we kill these people because they're in our way. Who says you're wrong? I mean, if there's no absolutes, who says you're wrong? If there's no ultimate right or wrong, who says you're wrong? Because you know what? Hitler said, I've got the power to do it and I'm right. But we know he was wrong because God says he's wrong. We know no matter how much you authorize people to go into stores and loot and rob because they're poor or because of their race, God says stealing is wrong, therefore it's wrong yesterday, it's wrong today, it'll be wrong tomorrow because God says it's wrong. Why is it wrong to, to, to kill an unborn baby? 
Because every single one of us was once conceived in our mother's womb. And I want you to use your imagination for a moment. At the moment of conception, was it not you? Was it not you? Of course it was you. It was you at the earliest stages of your development. And at three months development, it was you. And at six months, it was you. And at nine months, it was you. And at one day outside your mother's womb, it was you. Even though you had no cognizance, you had no self-awareness, you could not hear in a way that made sense of sounds. You could not see in a way that made distinctions. You could not speak. You could not take care of yourself. But it was you. The same you that sits here now, it was you then. How dare we think? That when God says he has a plan for every single human being, that we can snuff out the life of an unborn child because it's convenient to do so. It's an abomination in the sight of God. It's wrong because God says it's wrong. Because God says, when I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. He told Jeremiah, I ordained you for the nations as a prophet then. How dare we supplant the plan of God for these unborn babies and kill them because we think we have the right to do so. It's wrong because God says it's wrong. And you realize we've killed 65 million babies that never had a chance to live. I had a woman one time approach me, she and her daughter approached me as I was coming out of a pro-life meeting. I don't know why they pick on me, but somehow they... <laughs> Bishop Jackson, I said, yes. You want to deny a woman reproductive rights. And they on and on. They, I said, well, wait a minute, hold on. I said, wait a minute. I said... Is your daughter? She said, yes. Child about 14 years old, 13, 14 years old. I said, so you, what you're telling me is it would not may have made any difference if you snuffed her life out while she was still in your womb and she could not be standing here now. That, would, that, doesn't, that doesn't matter. Well, when I asked that question, the child looked up at her mother. And the mother looked down at her and looked up at me and grabbed the child and said, come on, let's go. Well, of course you got to go. Because you can't stand the logic of what I'm saying. You don't want to hear that because your mind is already so imbued with sin that you just want to do what you want to do no matter what the implications of it are. And the implications are horrible. You all realize, and, and, and here again, nobody wants to talk about this. 36% of abortions happen in the black community. They're part of a population control scheme, scheme that Margaret Sanger came up the racist, elitist Margaret Sanger came up with that. A, a, a racist, elitist scheme where she felt, just like Adolf Hitler, that people that she didn't think were worthy to live shouldn't be allowed to be born. And Planned Parenthood, you know Planned Parenthood, they're showing their colors because you realize they're doing an ad campaign with memes about sadomasochism saying, don't let someone else's yum be your yuck. Where they show instruments of sadomasochism, whips and chains and handcuffs, and what they're saying is, well, you shouldn't judge somebody just because they like sadomasochism. That's Planned Parenthood, an evil organization. And one day, if they don't repent, they're going to stand before Almighty God and pay the price. 
Well, listen, my brothers and sisters, we got to relay the foundation of faith in God. We got to relay the foundation of family. We got to relay the foundation of truth because truth is what God says it is. And Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. And look, Jesus is not just the teller of truth. He is the truth. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. And we've got to come back to the fact that there is truth. But you can't do that unless you know that you know that you know. In other words, it's time out for mere church going. You've got to make sure, as the, as, as the songwriter said, make sure that your, make your, the word says, make your calling and your election sure. Because in times like these, we need a savior. In times like these, we need an anchor, and we need to be sure and very sure that our anchor holds and grips the solid rock, and that rock is Jesus. So we've got to know. I'll tell you what, I came to know. My father raised me as a, as a, as a man who believed in God but not sold out to Jesus Christ. That didn't happen until later in life. And while I was attending Harvard Law School, I went to stay with my father during the summer and worked at a law firm called Morgan Lewis and Bacchius. And at the end of the summer, my father had gotten saved by them, but I wasn't. At the end of the summer, my father said to me, son, you know what I'm doing? I said, what? He said, I'm reading the Bible from cover to cover. I said, really? He said, yes. And I didn't think much of it. Then on my way home, I thought, you know what? I'm a Harvard intellectual. I should read the Bible too because who knows? It might come up at cocktail parties and between sips of white wine. Um, I want to be able to comment on it intelligently. And so... In September of 1976, I started reading the Bible from cover to cover, and I got to David, and, and something began to happen. Because men, you'll, you'll understand. Women, you'll forgive me. I was one of these guys who thought, you know, church is really important for women and children, but men have other things to do. And my wife would come home with this young man right here, come home from church, and if she walked through the door, I'd be sitting in our little two-bedroom two apartment with my feet popped up on the coffee table with a beer in my hand and look at my wife as she walked in the door on a Sunday and say, how much of my money you give that preacher today? And my wife would look at me, just shake her head, poor thing, demon possessed right up to the eyeballs. And I was. But I started reading the Bible and I came across David, this man's man, this man who said, I'll run through a troop and leap over a wall. This man who ran toward Goliath when others were running away. But I hear David saying, oh, God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I've looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. When I think of you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. Because you've been my help, therefore under the shadow of your wings I will rejoice. My soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. And I began to come under conviction. And on December 22nd, 1976, as an old song says, I woke up this morning with my mind stayed on Jesus. God had filled that bedroom, and I knew without a shadow of a doubt. I hadn't gone to church. I hadn't been to a prayer meeting pastor. I wasn't under the tutelage of anybody. I was just in the Word, and the Word had consumed me. I got up. I felt like I climbed down off the bed and walked into where my wife was sweeping again, this young man's room right here, and I walked and tapped my wife on the shoulder, my church-going wife, and tapped my wife on the shoulder. I said, you know what? My wife looked at me so sweet and said, what? I said, I think I'm saved. 
my wife dropped the broom and said, what? I said, I don't know how to explain it. I said, but God is doing something in my life. I said, where do you go to church? I want to go to church with you on Sunday. My wife took three steps back, looked me up and down, said, you ain't going with me. Because she called my mother-in-law and said, poor thing, Harvard Law School's too much for him. He had a nervous breakdown. He got up this morning talking about Jesus. But I hadn't lost my mind. I found it. I went to church that Sunday morning by myself, sat up in the balcony when Reverend Brandon gave the call to receive Jesus Christ and publicly acknowledge him. I felt like I sprinted to the altar and just laid there and just wept as the load of sin was lifted off me. I found out he was everything I was looking for. I found out that there is but one name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved, and that is the name of Jesus I found out that every eye will behold him, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I found out that there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, that sinners plunge beneath the flood and lose all their guilty stains. I found out that he's the lily of the valley, the bright and the morning star, the rose of Sharon, the prince of peace, the king of kings, and the lord of lords. I found out he's a wonderful counselor, that he's sweet, I know, the best thing that can ever happen to anybody. I'll tell you what, I found out that all that I'd been trying to find in every sinful thing had no satisfaction, but Jesus came in and I found the peace and the joy and the love and the hope that I've been looking for all my life and I've never looked back. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And God did the same thing in my wife's life and the same thing in my son's life and the same thing. We're praying for one of my daughters, but, but, but one of them, we got to get her. But the rest of my family, this is what America needs. America needs Jesus. So I want to say to you before I take my seat, don't you dare back up. Don't you dare back down. If you know who Jesus is and you know what he's done for you, as that song says, what he's done for me, what he's done for me, I can't forget what the good Lord has done for me. I once was blind, but now I see. Praise God for what he's done for me. If he's done it for you, then let the world know. Let your neighbors know. Let your colleagues know. Let your family know. I found the Savior. I found what America needs, and I'm going to keep proclaiming it everywhere I go until America's heart turns back toward God. And I'll tell you something else. I've read the back of the book, and we win. I appreciate those words this morning and folks you know it is so important that our nation turn back to God but the only way our nation is going to turn back to God is if individual people start turning back to God and that belong that starts with us that starts with us where are we at in our walk with the Lord have, do have we even started a walk with the Lord have we trusted the Lord as our personal Savior I appreciate the testimony you know of, of going along in life and suddenly I'm I, I got the Lord in front of me and then what, what do I do and trusting the Lord as my personal Savior and then making sure my life is honoring to the Lord but then helping draw my nation back to the Lord the Bible is very clear it's very clear we've mentioned it several times if my people God's people will humble themselves and pray 
and seek his face and turn from their wicked ways. Then he'll hear from heaven. It's my people, God's people. And so we have to do it. Let's stand with our heads bowed and eyes closed as Elizabeth comes to the piano. I don't know how the Lord's spoken to your heart and life today, but maybe, maybe you've never trusted the Lord as your personal Savior, and you need to do that today. I would encourage you to come down front, see me. I'll have somebody take a Bible and show you how you can know for sure that you're saved today. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior, maybe you, maybe you really haven't been, been as bold as you should be in your walk with him and your walk to bring other people back to the Lord, to help bring our nation to the Lord. I don't know where you you are today, but I'm going to ask Elizabeth just to play for a moment, and then we'll get ready to be dismissed.